I'm always struck by the curiosity and ingenuity of the farmers we get to interview here on this podcast. In nearly every episode, I hear a new idea or a new approach to building healthier soils that intrigues me. I have an air seeder where I could plant twin rows in between the bean rows. So then we went in and planted various clover mixes. So what I'm going to try and do is modify the platform so it pushes down the cover crops in between the bean rows. So we can cut the beans and leave the cover crop. And um, we're, we're just trying to have our cake and eat it too, is basically <laughs> what we're trying to do. I don't know if this is going to work. We'll see. It all depends on the weather, just like anything else in farming. But if we could get 30 bushel beans and 75 pounds of nitrogen, I think that'd be kind of cool. Today, farmer Joe Rothermel joins the show to talk about cover crops, strip tillage, and some of the experiments he's trying on his farm in East Central Illinois. This is the Soil Sense podcast, where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. On this show, we unpack the ways farmers collaborate to build healthier soils and adapt systems to work on their farm for both sustainability and profitability. Let's get to the root of all that and cover some ground on today's episode of Soil Sense. Hey there, thanks for tuning in to Soil Sense. I'm one of your hosts, Tim Hammerich. Joining me, of course, today is our co-host, Dr. Abby Wick, and we're sitting down with Illinois farmer Joe Rothermel. Joe is the fifth generation to operate his farm in East Central Illinois, primarily in Champaign County. And as you'll hear, he's someone who loves new ideas and approaches. He's always experimenting with ways he can improve his farm, lower his inputs, and maintain profitable yields. Joe originally thought he wanted to be a crop duster when he grew up. He ultimately decided he didn't quite have the right person personality for that role, but it led him into a career in the aerospace industry. But he took the chance to come back and take over the family farm in the mid-1990s, and that's where he's been ever since. I haven't always been a farmer. When I got out of college, I went to work uh, in the aerospace industry for McDonnell Douglas in technical services. So my disclaimer is I have no formal training in agriculture. And so I just kind of learn from meetings and conferences and from folks like, like you people. And so that's kind of how I got started. My dad retired from farming in 95, and then I moved back in the area from Southern California and took over the farm and um, have been doing that ever since. Well, tell us like when you came back to the farm, sounds like in the mid 90s, how, how involved, you know, did your father remain in the operation and, and sort of how did you find your footing in those early years? Yeah, he remained. Um, he had officially retired, but he, he kept helping and he did a lot of work up until about three years ago. So, yeah, he was pretty well involved. He let me make all the decisions and uh, do, do what I wanted to do. So, And I'm sure as you went to those meetings and kind of found materials to help you learn, you came back with ideas that were new to the operation. What, how did that go when you would maybe talk to him about those ideas? Well, he had um, he had started um, no-till farming in probably '92, so he had three years under his belt of no-till farming, but we had not practiced any cover cropping at that point. And uh, I remember calling him from the National No-Till Conference in Cincinnati after listening to a presentation from Joel Groover on cover crops, and I said, "I think we ought to try this." And he said, "Yeah, that's fine. Let's try it." And so 
that's kind of how we got started in in uh, cover cropping. And what year would have that been? Uh, that was probably oh eight or oh nine. And, and what did you hear there at, at the uh, the conference that that made you think, okay, it's it's time for us to give this a try? Well, I don't know if you've ever listened to Joel, but he's a fantastic speaker, and um, it was just really uh, amazing what all the uh, what all was going on in the soil and how we could possibly take advantage of some of those benefits if we let the ecosystem run the way it is designed to run. So that that was the goal. Well, I think it's natural, even when you hear a compelling speaker, to think like, yeah, but will this work on my farm? Maybe that question lingering back in the back of your head. When that first year was less than successful, <laughs> what made you think, no, I, I can figure out a way to make this work on my farm? Well, I just realized what I did wrong and just said, we, you know, we need to do our homework a little bit better before we start and, and maybe practice on smaller acres than 160 just wherever you practice, you know, it's there for the whole world to see. So you really don't want to mess up too big. Was was there a specific agronomic type problem that you connected with those cover crops? Something that you said, you know, this might help us with this issue we've been running into. Well, the issue that I've always ran into was I think I feel like we're heavy on inputs. And so my goal has always been to try and minimize inputs, chemicals, fertilizer and trying to at least maintain yield. I'm not trying to be a corn yield champion or anything like that. I would like to maintain yields and reduce input costs. So if we could grow some nitrogen or, uh, you know, agronomically loosen up the soil, help it retain more water, that was my goal. So how do most people go to meetings like that and they hear an idea? How did you implement that on your farm and make it stick? Well... I tried to learn as much as I could, but um, I didn't do very well. I wanted to try cereal rye, so I ended up buying some rye, and it came as annual rye grass. I don't even know if I knew the difference then uh, between cereal rye and annual rye grass. And so we we planted annual rye grass, 160 acres worth on about 80 acres because we didn't have the drill set right, and that was our first first attempt. So, and then we, you know, you just gradually learn from your mistakes and. Just kept trying. Now I'm curious about the fine tuning of this process. So you, you, uh, what did you do next to to make it work better? You didn't give up, right? So how did, what did you do next? No, um, I've been uh, trying strip till uh, also. Uh, I thought that was a good balance between conventional tillage and no till. So we we had been practicing strip till. So I tried to find a way to combine uh, planting cover crops with strip till. And so we made some implements that would allow us to strip till and plant the cover crop at the same time. So the idea there would we we would have a winter kill species on the corn row, and then in between the corn rows we would have something like clover or some kind of legume. And then when the springtime came, the corn row, which had radishes on it, would be just a black berm, and then in between those rows, you would hopefully have some clover growing. Or something other than a grass. The hardest thing as far as cover cropping in my area is to get something to grow after soybeans. So uh, I've been trying to plant earlier variety soybeans, even all the way up to a 2.2 maturity, which nobody around here would ever plant. And um, still, we have a hard time getting clover to uh, make it through the winter. And uh, it's just kind of... um, I've been doing some research with Dr. Armstrong from Purdue, 
on trying to, uh, you know, plant cover crops after soybeans. And um, the last two years, we, we just haven't got hardly any clover to grow after the beans, even after early beans. We can grow cereal rye. I mean, easy enough, but sometimes you take a, y- a hit in corn after that. Sometimes you don't. Depends on the year. Uh, so uh, we've kind of taken a different approach, uh, growing more wheat now, which allows you to grow whatever cover crop you really want, and kind of heading down that road now. So you looking at any other legumes besides clover? Do you think there's another fit for your system that could bring the nitrogen and, and establish a little better? I've thought about trying hairy vetch. But um, I don't know if I want to. I want that stuff around forever. So we've just been sticking with clovers and clover mixes. Yeah, I've heard hairy vetch referred to as scary vetch. So if we use a vetch man, it's a common vetch. That's the one that we're feeling brave enough to try. So maybe there's maybe there's a gateway into the vetches, and if it doesn't work, don't you, you might hold me accountable for it. <laughs> so. Yeah. Are you, are you particular on what else goes in that mix with the clover? No, I'm still learning. We we just really I couldn't tell you the best one to plant. So because of that, we do a mix. So hopefully one of them will turn out. This fall we had oats as a nurse crop, crimson clover, balanza, uh, some other mixes with oats and brassium and can't remember some other kind of clover. So we have various different mixes. Let's go back to kind of the the introduction of strip till. So you are already. It sounds like over a decade in, into no-till, uh, what made you consider strip-till and then maybe compare how things look after you started strip-till versus when you were no-till? Well, pure no-till corn is kind of an art. Um, you really have to make sure you're, all your I's are dotted and T's crossed to make that work right. And so for me, strip-till was kind of insurance against a cold, wet spring. And so uh, I thought it was the best of both worlds. Problem with it is it takes a lot of horsepower and uh, equipment's not, you know, it's not cheap, but it's, it's, a, it's a great way to grow corn. And you mentioned earlier, you know, a big part of your motivation was trying to figure out if there were ways you could reduce inputs, uh, you know, especially chemical inputs. Do you feel like you have so far and do you feel like there's still more reductions that you can make in the future with your system? Well, I think we're making some progress. This year was a very humbling year for conservation practices in my area. Uh, if you had big cereal rye and you planted green and you let that go, and uh, I rolled mine, it really took a toll on the beans because it just took the moisture out of the soil. And those beans, I don't know if they'll ever catch up uh, unless we get a lot of rain. But we only sprayed those fields once. No burn down, just rolled it and then sprayed it with their enlist beans. And they're staying fairly clean other than pockets where water stood. Uh, things like that. So there, there is some hope for that, for cereal rye, you know, reducing some weed pressure. But it's not perfect. Gosh, I feel, I feel like we're rapid fire questioning, questions for you, Joe. One of the things I'd be curious about is, so you've had these, these different experiences with, with dry conditions in the spring or probably wet conditions. What, what advice would you give to someone who's just getting into using cover crops, in particular, maybe even the, the overwintering cover crops, what advice would you give them to help manage that system? Well, um, first of all, I would say start small, and I would say terminate it early in the spring. And if you have any inclination that it's a dry spring, you know, definitely terminate it early. But we didn't know that this year. We were already in a drought when we decided to, uh, you know, to roll the cereal rye. And actually, we had two inches of rain, and then we rolled it, and we thought, oh, this is fine. 
and then it really turned off dry. But my advice would be to terminate early just to reduce that risk. And uh, is rolling a, a usual practice for you? I mean, does rolling usually work out pretty well if you have a normal year, of, you know, and not a especially dry one like this year? Well, um, I've only tried it for a couple of years, so I'm still learning how to do that. That's kind of an art too, uh, rolling cereal rye. You know, it has to be right, just the right growth stage for that to die. And sometimes this year, some of it stood back up. I'm not sure why, and it didn't die. And then, so uh, yeah, that's an art. Uh, but if it works, I think it's great. You get that cereal right down into a mat, hold some moisture in, and uh, hopefully reduces some weed pressure. Uh, so how about, do you have any farming partners that you're working with on this? Or who do you bounce ideas around with as you try new practices on the farm? Well, I'm, I'm on the Soil and Water Board so here in Champaign County. So we have a network of, uh, of people that we talk to. And so... Yeah, we, we watch and listen and have field days and things like that. So there's a variety of people I talk to. And what about, uh, you know, do you still go to those meetings and conferences and events? And, and if so, which ones are most valuable to you? I still go. Um, and actually, I coordinated one this spring for our local farmers. And it's interesting. We, we are starting to get people who are primarily conventional coming into these meetings, uh, trying to learn because there, you know, there's a lot of outside influence. You know, you got all the climate smart money coming down the pipe and all the, uh, the food people like Frito and, uh, and all those are encouraging farmers to adopt some of these practices. So uh, there's some people starting to come to meetings that I never thought I'd see there before. What, and what do you think of all that? Well, I think it's great. I'm not sure what they think of it. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, that'd be something that would be fun to talk about. What what could you tell, you know, a farmer who hasn't been using reduced till or cover crops when they when they show up to their first meeting, what what would what should they expect when they come into this kind of soil health community that's that's sharing information? Well, I would say keep an open mind and um don't look at it as there's a right and wrong way. It's just an alternative way. Because we have a lot of really fantastic farmers in the area. And what they're doing now is, you know, they're very good at it. So just another way to farm that, you know, you might consider. And it might help solve some problems along the way. Also might make some more problems if you don't manage it correctly. But uh, yeah, I just say keep an open mind and, you know, see what you pick up. Well, I know you seem very humble to me and you said you don't have any formal training in agriculture, but I think, you know, going on 30 years of farming, you don't need to let that be a hindrance at this point. What what do you think is the barrier to those who who haven't tried any of these practices? And I know you said there's more and more curious, which is great. But what do you think is the barrier to getting them to to start? That's the question that comes up at almost every meeting. <laughs> it, uh, and I think there's a variety of answers for that. Um, and I don't claim to know all the answers, but uh, there's a variety of things. Uh, economics is a, is a big one. You know, show me the money. Uh, it's a big one for farmers. Peer pressure, you know, what are my neighbors going to say if I do this? Um, and just change. Resistance to change. I think the biggest one is probably economics. And, and there's a valid reason for that. Now, without getting too personal or too much information, what is, what is your economic journey through this looked like? Or how have you justified the, the additional expense of a cover crop seed into your operation? Um, CSP contracts. <laughs> I would sign up for as many of those as you can. 
They will help pay for cover crop seed. CSP or EQIP contracts usually cover most of that. But personally, I spent way too much money on equipment when you could probably do things easier for less. But I like experimenting and uh, things like that. So, yeah. So I guess to justify it, um, I feel that we're, we're losing less topsoil. It takes a long time to probably actually see some return, especially on better soils like you have here in Champaign County. It's going to take longer to see a benefit, probably. Well, you said you like to experiment. What what uh, what are you experimenting with now, or or what questions are keeping you up at night about how you're going to uh, tweak your system going forward? Well, lately, what I've been thinking about is covers after wheat. Can we grow uh, enough nitrogen to make it worthwhile, or can we possibly have a double crop and intercede a uh, cover crop into the double crop soybeans at the same time. That sounds interesting. What, uh, what's kind of the next step to, to uh, playing with that idea? Well, I've got a plot out, and um, so we'll see what happens. We just need some rain to make it work. <laughs> okay, so explain this, this approach, this double crop soybean with a cover crop into it. Well, it's, um, I was going to say it was all in my head, but now it's, it's in the ground. So I don't know if this is even going to work. Uh, so we cut the wheat, then we went in and planted uh, double crop soybeans in 30-inch rows, which I'll, I'll give you is probably not ideal, probably be better drilled. I've never planted double crop beans in 30-inch rows. I've always just drilled them. So then we let the beans come up about, oh, first trifoliate, then I sprayed the whole field, killed the volunteer wheat. Uh, they're enlist beans. And then we went in, I have an air seeder where I could plant twin rows in between the bean rows. So then we went in and planted various clover mixes. So what I'm going to try and do is modify the platform so it pushes down the cover crops in between the bean rows. So we can cut the beans and leave the cover crop. And um, we're, we're just trying to have our cake and eat it too. It's basically what we're trying to do. I don't know if this is going to work. We'll see. It all depends on the weather, just like anything else in farming. But if we could get 30 bushel beans and 75 pounds of nitrogen, I think that'd be kind of cool. The problem with hearing all these stories across the country is that I want to come look at that plot now and see how it's working for you. We did, we did a little bit of that up here with some camelina and some soybean. And what we ended up doing was put, um, oh, was it like drainage pipe across on the, the cutter bar to help with pushing the soybean down where he's cutting camelina. Is that kind of your plan? Yeah, that's why I had made up a piece. It was just a piece of uh, three-inch PVC just pulled on the, on the sickle just to push over the, the cover crop about 20 inches wide so you leave a, a little gap for the beans. So Yeah, it seems like after weed is a great, great time to do, like you were talking about that bio-strip-till, right? I mean, you had radish in, in some rows and then you had clover in between and were you doing that after the wheat crop and seeding that or no i was doing that after soybeans after soybeans okay and there's you, you have plenty of time down there to get the growth that you need and uh, get it established no no <laughs> <laughs> well it used to be back in uh, i'd say um after 2012 through 20 you know almost 2020 we grew some really good cover crops after soybeans but Seems like the last five years, something's changed. Um, we harvest beans later, maybe because we're using fungicide. And it seems like we don't cut beans till the second or third week in September. And that just doesn't give me enough time to get, get a legume established. 
I remember when I first started doing this, we were cutting beans during the Farm Progress Show. But lately, it's been later and later. So then how do you determine if you have enough time? Is there a cutoff date or do you try to push up where you're, you're seeding your cover crops at the same time you're harvesting? Or how do you make that work to get those cover crops in? Well, usually we just, yeah, we like to get them done by third week in September. But if we don't and we have the seed, we plant it anyway and just keep our fingers crossed. So that's, that's about all we can do because you never know. It might turn off warm and wet and they might make it. But it seems like lately they have not. Yeah, I have one one farmer I work with has said, the only cover crop I regret is the one I didn't plant. And (laughs) so that seems to ring true for a lot of you that are using cover crops. What about equipment? You said you kind of you like to experiment with different equipment. What's what's the next equipment you're eyeballing or looking at or considering? Um, Really nothing on my radar now. Uh, I built a roller cripper, so I got that. The only equipment. plan on building is just a device to to harvest the soybeans and leave the uh leave the uh, cover crops so i have an air seeder uh for planting the covers so i spent a lot of time and money on equipment and i'm um, kind of ready to settle down in that area yeah i think joe you might be the first person we've had on that does the roller crimping can you walk us through that process well like i said i'm kind of new to it i'm not an expert so one thing I learned was I bought a, a variety of, of cereal rise L-Bond this year instead of using VNS. Because I find VNS seed is uh, just not as uniform throughout the field. And I wanted a little earlier variety so that I could roll it earlier. I guess I should back up a little bit. We did buy some air seeders and put them on the corn heads. So we're blowing on the cereal rise. We're shelling the corn. I just did that last year for the first time. So that saves a trip with, you know, a drill or anything else, except you got to stop and fill it up once in a while. But so we're blowing the cereal rye on with the corn head and then um, we let it grow over the winter. The problem is we want to plant beans in April. So we'll go out and plant the beans into the cereal rye, however big it is, usually knee high maybe. And then we'll let the beans grow up. And I've been rolling the cereal rye with the beans about uh, second, third trifoliate which is kind of scary at first, but it doesn't seem to hurt them too much. The tire tracks are the worst thing. And so that's what I've been doing. Uh, Or sometimes I'll go spray it, let it set three days, and then roll it. That way you make sure it's all dead. Because sometimes when you roll it, it it doesn't kill at all for some reason. So, Is is that with with the rolling, is it it needs three breaks along the stem? Is Is that how crimping works? Where when you run the crimper over, it has to break the, the rye stem three times to kill it? Yeah. So it has to be an anthesis for that to work right. And so you have to wait for it to be, you know, it's pretty tall. It's heading out and uh, blooming. So it's pretty good size. Very cool. Well, Joe, this has been great. I, I really appreciate you sharing all this. You've got some interesting stuff going on. And I think Abby is going to make a, a trip out to Eastern Illinois one of these days and check out all this stuff. Uh, but, you know, you've been to so many of these meetings over the years. If somebody said, Joe, we need you to give the keynote at this next meeting, uh, what, you know, what would your message be to, to other farmers interested in soil health that may be coming at it from, you know, varying points along that journey? What would your message be to them? Well, my message would be... I think we just got to take care of our natural resources. And I feel like we haven't done such a good job lately. I think we're getting better and learning, but um, 
you know, a lot of reports you read about soil loss, you know, water quality is a big issue also. I think we need just need to consider some of those things uh, in, the, in the long run. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you very much to Joe Rothermel for being on the show today. He's a great example of one of our core beliefs on this show, which is building healthier soils takes a ton of curiosity and a willingness to try new approaches, even if on a small scale, to see if they can be adapted to a local context. Really enjoyed that one with Joe. Thank you very much again to Joe Rothermel for being on the show. Before we close, I'd like to thank the Soy Checkoff for sponsoring this Farmers for Soil Health series of the Soil Sense podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Abby Wick, Dr. Olivia Cayuet, and myself with support from the United Soybean Board, the University of Missouri Center for Regenerative Agriculture, and the Soil Health Institute. If you're at all interested in what soil health looks like in practice and on the farm, I highly suggest you subscribe to and follow this show on your podcast platform of choice and leave us a rating and review while you're there. Also, be sure to check out the Farmers for Soil Health website at farmersforsoilhealth.com. Until next time, stay curious, keep collaborating, and don't forget to take a minute to stop and smell the soil. Have a good one.